Have you ever been falsely accused of something? Who in here has ever experienced that? Falsely accused of something. Good, just about all of us. If you haven't, come see us. We'll make sure you get one before you leave today. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, what, what does that feel like when somebody accuses you of something and you did not do what they said you did? It is not a good feeling, is it? You start retracing your steps frantically in your mind. You know what I'm talking about? And if, if, you're, if it's not careful, or if the person makes a strong enough or convincing enough uh, accusation against you, man, it's possible to think, well, man, well, did I do that? You know, it is just one of those things that is just, you know, it can send panic uh, throughout you. And if you're not able to defend yourself, it makes it even worse. Or the, the worst part of it is, if someone accuses you falsely of something, you are not able to disprove that because you just weren't given the opportunity or consequences came down quickly, you know, and you suffer the consequences of that, of having, being punished for something that you did not do. Well, that's where we're headed in the book of Acts. We're picking up the story today, and starting today, it's like the brakes have been knocked out. And this train is going to gather momentum and it is going to keep building and keep building and keep building and there's not really anything that we're going to be able to do to stop it. Vicious anger will rise. Beatings are going to occur. Arrests are going to happen. False accusations will ultimately lead to the first martyr in the church. Now then, we hear the word martyr. And most people know what a martyr is, but just in case you're unfamiliar with that term, a martyr is someone who is killed for their religious beliefs. And as this momentum builds, that's where this story is headed. And it's going to stretch out. Again, you know, I'm not a big fan, and you know this, you've heard me say this a lot of times, but I understand why they're here. I'm not a big fan of chapter divides in Scripture. Because it kind of breaks up the story and you miss the flow of what happens. Okay? And again, that's what happens. That's what's going to happen as we move through this. And so this story that we're going to talk about is really going to stretch out for the next two or three weeks as we see what happens. All starting with where we left off last week. Where you have Peter and John and the apostles and they've been arrested because of jealousy from the religious leaders, because they have been performing signs and wonders, and they've been preaching, and they have been teaching in the name of Jesus. And it has aroused a, a tremendous amount of hate and anger in the eyes of the religious leaders, and especially in the eyes of the, of the, the Sadducees. And they tell them, didn't we warn you? Didn't we command you not to preach, not to teach, or speak? in the name of Jesus. And Peter looks them directly in the eye and he said, we must obey God rather than people. You remember that? That is a bold statement from Peter, is it not? That is a statement that only he could make, I think, after he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Because we've seen Peter crumble under pressure before, pre Holy Spirit on the night that Jesus was betrayed but here he has the Holy Spirit indwelling him empowering him 
guiding him, giving the words to say. And when they say, don't speak in the name of Jesus, he says, hey, look, you do what you got to do. We're going to do what we have to do. And that is to preach in this name of Jesus. And so they continue doing that. Well, let's pick up the story. Let's pick up the story in verse 33. Verse 33 says, When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Keep in mind who it is that wants to kill Peter. It's the church people. Do you see that? It's the religious leaders. They're so mad at Peter and these apostles for preaching in the name of Jesus, for doing all these signs and wonders that are drawing all of their people over to this new movement called the church. Well, it's not really called the church yet. They're called the way. These people who who follow Jesus and who proclaim resurrection from the dead, they're so upset at that that they want to kill them. Have you ever been so mad at somebody you just wanted to hurt them? Now, we all say that, don't we? We've all said stuff like that. You know, we've all said, man, I'm just going to tear you in half. Okay? These guys were literally that mad. They were literally that upset. You see the word enraged there in yellow? That word is dia prio. You know what the literal translation of that is? To divide with a saw. That's how mad the religious leaders were at Peter and the rest of the apostles. They are so mad that they want to divide them with a saw, to cut asunder, to grate the teeth as in a rage, to be cut to the heart, to be enraged. That's pretty mad, right? Now that this word is going to come back into play in the next part of the story, but we won't get there until next week, but it's going to be the same word. Luke is going to use this word again to describe the anger of the religious leaders as we meet one of the new characters that that comes on the scene. So they're mad at him. They're upset. Verse 34 says, But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be taken outside for a little while. He said to them, Men of Israel, be careful about what you are about to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After this man, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and attracted a following. He also perished, and all his followers were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you to stay away from these men, And leave them alone, for if this plan is the work of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found to be fighting against God. Now then, it sounds like Gamaliel is really wise here, but realistically, I think he's kind of dodging. Okay, I think he is unrepentant. I think he's disingenuous about who these guys are and what their mission is. And I don't think he respects Jesus. Okay? Because he puts Jesus on the same level as these rebel rousers who caused all this problem, who got themselves killed. He does not expect this movement, the apostles, the church. He does not expect them to succeed. 
He expects them to be treated just like these other guys who were, who were killed. So watch what they do as a result of their preaching, teaching, proclaiming the name of Jesus in the temple and bringing all thousands of people to him. Verse 40, after they called the apostles, they called in the apostles and had them flogged. 39 lashes is what that is. Okay. Now, the law would allow for 40, but these people are so concerned with breaking the law that they would do 40 lashes minus one just to make sure they wouldn't break the law. But you tell you what, you hit me one time with a lash, and that's enough. 39 times these guys were flogged. Now, as we get into the later chapters, as we get into the stuff about Philippi, I'm really going to break down what flogging means, and it is some bad, bad stuff. In fact, a lot of people died from just being flogged. It's much more than just being whipped. I mean, it's being hit with canes, and it destroys the muscles. I'm going to tell you more about that as we move on. So they flogged them, and again, ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and released them. They went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. And then notice verse 42. Every day in the, where? In the temple, and in various homes, they continued what? Teaching and proclaiming what? The good news that Jesus is the Messiah. These guys just don't learn. They continue teaching. They continue preaching because they believe in Jesus. They believe in the kingdom of God. And they don't care what it costs them. They're willing to lay their bodies literally, physically on the line to make sure that the message is preached, that the good news of the kingdom is heard for all. And what have we seen? Time and time again, we've seen people coming to Jesus in droves, has we, have we not? So now the church is up and running. And you get into to chapter 6, and, and any organization is going to have some internal struggles, right? Especially any new organization or any new movement, okay? There's going to be some growing pains. And so this is what we're going to see happen right here at the beginning. Uh, let's start reading together in, verse six, in chapter 6. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. Now then, that, that's talking about the food distribution. Okay, You have these Hellenistic or these Greek Jewish widows, and you have these Hebrew Jewish widows. Okay, And they are dependent upon the church. Okay, Remember back in chapter 2? And, and the later chapters where it talked about, you know, they all devoted themselves to the apostles preaching, teaching. Nobody had a need. All these needs were being met. Well, as it grew and grew and grew and grew and grew, you have all these widows who are coming, and they don't have anybody to care for them, so they're trusting in the church for their needs. And then evidently, it looks like the, the, the Greek Jewish widows are getting overlooked in the daily distribution of the food. And so they, they raise this problem. Verse 2, The twelve summoned the whole company of disciples and said, 
it would not be right for us to give up the word, uh, preaching of the word to wait on tables. Now then, look at, look at verse 3. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of wisdom, who we can appoint to this duty. Okay? And so they do this. Verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the word. This proposal, this proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Pumbaa, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch, Akuna Matata. What you have here is that you have the selection of the, the first deacons, the first deacons of the church, okay? There's this problem, it's brought to the apostles. The apostles' number one job as commissioned by Jesus is to go into all the world Make disciples, teach everybody about me, teach them about my name, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Apostles is, means messengers, it means sent ones, and they were chosen and sent by Jesus. That is the most important job that these guys have. Now all of a sudden, here comes these administration problems, okay, and they're saying, hey, look, this is, is getting in the way of our main thing. This is a problem that should not be going on. We should not have this problem. We got enough people here that we should be able to figure this out. So here's what you do. Look around the group and you find people. You find these guys and let's appoint them to kind of take care of this problem so that we can get back to the job that Jesus gave us, which is preaching the word. Okay, and so you have these first deacons and there's, there's, three, there's three qualifiers right here. They must have a good reputation. Okay, people need to respect them. Okay, look up to them. Maybe turn to them for advice. They have to be full of the Spirit. That's a big one. In other words, they're trusting in the Holy Spirit with their lives. They are, are exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit. The love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in all aspects of their life, in their business, in their home life, in their in, the, uh, in, in their, their community. They must exhibit these things and show that they are believers in and trust in the Holy Spirit. And then finally, they must be wise. They have to be thoughtful and they have to be very discerning. They need to be fair. Okay, that was the, the sort of the, the first qualifiers for the first deacons. However, this shouldn't be the aim for deacons alone, right? Shouldn't those things... Good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and wise. Shouldn't those be markers for all of us? Right? I mean, they should be. And do you know, you know, a lot of times, well, we, it's funny how language changes and we do different things with words. Do you know what a deacon is? Deacon is not a position of high authority. Deacon, somebody said it. Deacon is a what? What is a deacon? A servant. Did you know that? That's what a deacon is. It is a servant. It is a, a minister. 
Okay, and so they appoint these guys to serve these widows to make sure they get the right food. Now then, you read what the apostles say, and they say, you know, we need to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, and it sort of sounds like they're passing off the job, but we do have to keep in mind what their job is. Their job is ministry of the word, to spread the good news of the kingdom of God. Their focus had become divided, and so they delegated so they could continue this this ministry of word and prayer. Now then, I want to say a, a personal note. Tim mentioned that we needed help this morning. He wasn't joking. We need, we need help. Okay? There are tasks that go on around here that more people, you, you've got people handling more than they should be handling. Okay? We need help. You see, if, if, if you think being a Christian means that you just come to worship on a Sunday morning and consume, you've sorely misunderstood the call of Christ in your life. Because Jesus said that we already take up a cross and follow Him. We need people to help. The, the, the coffee just doesn't get made. The coffee cups don't magically refill themselves. The building doesn't just magically get, get cleaned. Okay, the grass doesn't just get mowed. We have a very, very, very small group of people that handles all of those things. Okay? And so we need... I'm asking you, please help us. If you are physically able and you can help, please help us. Because that's part of the call of Christ. It's not just sit back and let everything go and I'm just going to consume. It is about helping. It's about getting involved and making sure needs are met. Yeah, financial and outside of here, that's great, but churches also have needs within the community, right? And this is a need that we have to be met. We need teachers very, very, very badly. Did you know that we have people that teach two times a month? Which means that they miss being in here half a month because they're having to cover other spots. Okay? So I want you to to strongly consider where it is you can serve. Okay? As I look around the room, I see... Very few people who physically cannot serve. Okay, now I understand, I understand, you know, I know you're busy, I get it. But the truth is, we're all busy, right? Those that are serving already, trust me, they're busy. We get the busy thing. But if we truly understand the call of Christ and the commitment to serve, we will make time. Okay, so when I ask you for help, I'm not just saying it because I need something to fill up my sermon time. Okay, you know me better than that. I can talk forever. Okay, you know me way better than that. When I say I need, we need help, we need help. And so I'm expecting you, I'm expecting you to come to me or to come to Tommy or to come to Jeffrey and say, here's how I'm going to help or how can I help? Because there are things that, that just happen that pull focus 
from what other people need to be doing. Does that make sense? So we need your help. Okay, enough with that rant. I'll move on now. All right. So they go on and they choose these guys, Timon and Pumbaa and Stephen and Philip. They had them stand before the apostles, verse 6, who prayed and laid hands on them. Then verse 7, you get kind of this, this update of what happens. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. So this is a good thing. They kind of got their growing pains solved, and the church continues to move forward. They get the people in place serving. And when people serve, the church operates as it should. That's kind of amazing, isn't it? That if you get people helping, that it kind of takes care of itself. Is there a lesson there? I think so. So that's what they do, and the church begins growing once again. Now then, right here, the story picks up, and Luke is going to spend a lot of ink telling us about Stephen. And this right here, this is a pivot point for the entire book of Acts right here, and it is monumentally important because what is happening here is going to lead to a tremendous event that is going to, to cause extreme persecution. But it's also going to be the spark that ignites the world for Jesus. Watch verse 8. Stephen is not just a deacon. He's not just serving. He does some other things. Verse 8. Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. He's not even an apostle, okay? But he's full of the Holy Spirit, and God's doing these incredible things in front of him, through him, rather. But opposition arose, however, from some members of the Freedmen's Synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia in Asia, and they began to argue with Stephen. Okay? They don't like what Stephen's message is. Now then, it doesn't tell us specifically what it is right here, but we know Stephen to be a believer in Jesus, right? His message is going to be about Jesus. It is going to be about the resurrection and about this new, this new way of life. Okay, and so you have these, these people from these synagogues. Apparently, he's, he's going outside of, of, of the temple, and he's going to these synagogues. And so he goes to this, this, uh, this freedmen's synagogue. The, the people who made up that synagogue are freed slaves from Rome. Okay, and so they've come together in this community. But they don't like what Stephen is saying, and they come from these other places, even from Cilicia. Now, that's an important place. Anybody know who comes from Cilicia? A guy we know by the name of Paul comes from there. And it's suggested that maybe even he is there, and he is the ones that, one of the ones that tries to argue unsuccessfully against Stephen. Verse 10 says, But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom, and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders, and the scribes. So they came and they seized him and they took him to the Sanhedrin. They presented false witnesses. 
who said this man never stops speaking against this holy place, talking about the temple, and the law, the law of Moses. For we heard him say, this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. And then finally, verse 15, and all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So Peter is there in these synagogues. He's preaching the message of Jesus. They don't like what he has to say. Okay, they don't like what he has to say. Okay, now then, here's the thing. The religious leaders, they rise up in opposition because they are afraid they're going to lose their power, right? You have the Sanhedrin, the ruling body, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. Okay, they are afraid of losing their seat of power. But these guys from the Freedmen's, uh, from the Freedmen's Synagogue, they don't have any power. They're defending a worldview, a way of, of looking at things which colored their whole life, and they saw the proclamation of Jesus as a threat to that whole way of, of, of thinking and, and living. And so they grab Stephen, and they trump up these charges. They find these, these false accusations against him and they level them before the Sanhedrin but as they look at Stephen they notice that his face is intently shining you know this is not the you know not the you know childlike porcelain face of an angel that we often see in pictures it's also not the the the, the stern face of of vengeance but it's the face of calmness in the midst of calamity. It's the face of peace in the midst of a storm. It's the, the confidence in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and His confidence unnerved His adversaries. This is the confident face of Jesus seen in Stephen. Jesus is alive in His church, and the Sanhedrin has no idea what to do about it. Now then, it's, it's interesting to notice what's going on in the book of Acts and what took place in, in the book of Luke. And if you pay attention, you realize there's some parallels. Uh, one of my professors, Earl Lavender, he says, what Jesus did in Luke's gospel, the apostles and the church do in Acts. You know, if you think about the story, that's exactly right. Jesus preached and he taught and he healed people. Okay? You look in Acts and that's exactly what they're doing. They preach, they teach, they heal people. But it's not just the good things that happen. You see, to Jesus they also hired false witnesses. Remember that? They also stirred up the crowds against him. They also said that he attacked the law of Moses and that he attacked the temple. And ultimately, what happened? They executed him. Everything that goes on in the Gospel of Luke 
takes place in the book of Acts through the apostles and through the church. You see, Luke is telling, Luke's telling of the story is setting us up for the same thing. It is going to happen to them too. And Stephen is going to be the first one to see it all the way to its end. You see, because that's a reality that all Christians must be willing to accept, right? Now that I don't know that there will ever be a time when any of us is martyred for our faith, but there might be. And are we willing to accept that? Now then, it's maybe not too likely that it happens, but it is more likely that we will endure maybe a little bit of mild criticism. You ever notice that sometimes we have trouble standing up under that? How many Christians struggle to stand up under mild criticism? of their beliefs. I have. Have you? Jesus said, they hated me without reason. He also said, if they hate me, they're going to hate you too. That's what we're beginning to see take place. And that also means that if we are Christians, we have to be willing to to accept that because that is the reality. This is a major turn in the story. The the testimony that Stephen is about to give is going to be the climax of the church's witness to the Jews. Do you realize that? All along, they have been going up against Jews and Judaism. Okay? But this... In chapter 7, when Peter finishes, or excuse me, when Stephen finishes this speech, which, by the way, is the longest one recorded in the book, so you can see how important it is. Once he concludes that, that's the last time that there's a real big push for the Jews. Then they're going to start turning outwardly to Samaria and to the Gentiles, just like Jesus said. And I, I don't want to give you too much of a look ahead, but it is really Really interesting. I won't even give you, I won't tell you what it is, but if you want to look this up, not while I'm preaching, but later when you get home. Contrast Acts 1 verse 8 with Acts 8 verse 1. Now then, don't get hung up on the numbers, because remember, those numbers aren't supposed to be there, and I don't care about it. But it's just interesting to look at those. Contrast what happens in 1 verse 8, what is said in 1 verse 8 by Jesus, what happens in 8 verse 1 you're going to see something pretty spectacular happen. But from there, the message is going to go out and it is going to spread. But with it, extreme persecution is going to come upon the church. That's what it's about. So Stephen, he's a man of of great character. And I really, I wish we had time to go ahead and just go right into the next part of it. Because if you read verse 1 of chapter 7, you see the stories continue, okay? You know, the high priest of all people, probably Caiaphas, is going to point to him and and ask him a question. Is this true? Is what you're doing, is that really true? 
and it's going to go on from there. Now then, they have accused, and really, I'm getting ahead of myself, but they have accused Stephen of preaching against the law of Moses. He is going to refute that in the sermon. Now then, Luke gives us this sort of, this sort of interesting thing that happens at the end. Right there at the end, what do they say his face looked like? Shone like an angel. When God and Moses were on Mount Sinai and God was giving Moses the Ten Commandments, do you remember what Moses looked like when he came down from the Ten Commandments? Getting the Ten Commandments? What did it say there? Was it Exodus 34? What does it say? His face shone with the glory of God. Luke is saying, pay attention here. Because what's going on with Luke or with, with Stephen is exactly what was going on with Moses. Stephen isn't against Moses, but Stephen recognizes that Moses isn't the end, that there's someone greater than Moses, and that is Jesus Christ. Okay? And so Stephen is going to stand up full of the Holy Spirit. And this is next week. I'm just giving you the preview now because it's really good stuff. He's going to stand up full of the Holy Spirit, and he is going to defend his faith all the way to the death. So what's our community connection for this week? Simply this. Let your spirit-filled life stand as your witness. If people accuse you of things, mock you or whatever, let your spirit-filled life stand as your witness. Don't overreact, don't act foolishly, don't act out of self-righteous anger because really, that's, that's the easiest way to do, isn't it? That's, if I'm honest, I've acted that way more than I wanted to. But I need to let the Holy Spirit be my witness. Ask God to fill you with the Holy Spirit, to manifest the fruits you need to stand up against accusations or whatever it might be. In other words, let your life be so drenched by the Holy Spirit that any accusations will just fall off as an absurdity. You know what I'm talking about? Because you're a person who people respect. You're a person who people know if they tell you something, it is not going to go beyond you. Okay? That also means if you're a gossip, stop gossiping. Okay? Now that sounds funny, but that's serious. If you're a gossip, stop gossiping. That's not Holy Spirit filled. That's you filled. It means that you love people. Just like what Ed shared with us back during communion. He said, I can't be the judge of people. Okay? A spirit filled person does not judge. A spirit filled person loves and tries to help in whatever way possible. A spirit filled person is wise and discerning. Trusting in God to lead and give the words and to show the way. So let your spirit-filled life stand as your witness, which means you need and I need to allow ourselves to be filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Because one of the qualifications was choose people who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit Meaning, there must be people in this crowd who are known not to be full of the Holy Spirit, right? It's not a one time and you're done. We have to stay in contact with that continual filling. Does that make sense?
That's it. Let your life, your spirit-filled life, stand as your witness. Let's pray together.